0: We are celebrating heroes this month, women who transformed America over the past 200 years, remarkable women of notable achievements as far back as 1776, from the fields of social work, science, politics, sports, medicine, law, and adventure, many who were hampered by constraints we can't even imagine today. This is Loree Johnson. Join me as we look back and appreciate what they contributed. Their goal was not money or notoriety, but simply a better life for children, families, society, and the environment. They broke free from the stereotypical female role. Their independent spirits have made a difference for us today. We stand on their shoulders and we salute them this month. Women's History Month, or shall we say, Story Month. I'm going to speak where and when I wish. No man will stop me. This is a quote from Marie Equi. She was born in 1872 and raised in Massachusetts. Dr. Equi escaped a life working in a textile mill by traveling west in 1890. She worked a homestead in the Dalles with her long-term partner, Bessie Holcomb, while studying for medical school. The Dalles' Times Mountaineer reported that she had publicly horsewhipped a boss who had withheld wages from one of her romantic partners. That was only the beginning of Equi's public fight against the cheats, capitalists, and warmongers who constituted her enemies in the class war a stance that would eventually earn her the nickname of Portland's Queen of the Bolsheviks. After graduating in 1903, Dr. Equi set up a practice in Portland, mainly serving low-income people. She was an early medical doctor in the American West devoted to providing care to working class and poor patients. She regularly provided birth control information and abortions at a time when both were illegal. Equi became one of the most trusted abortionists in Portland, treating people from every social class and deftly avoiding the attention of law enforcement. She became a political activist and advocated civic and economic reforms, including women's right to vote and an eight-hour workday. A rebellious soul with a fiery temperament and a commitment to justice make her one of Oregon's most impressive historical figures. Her friends describe Marie Equi, M.D., as a real friend of the have-nots of this world. She was also the first publicly known lesbian on the West Coast and an outspoken advocate for women's rights. She was very sensitive to the health needs and rights of women and children. Gaining a reputation as an expert diagnostician and tireless advocate for reproductive choice. She was a leading figure in public health campaigns and received a recommendation from the U.S. Army for her efforts. In 1905, Dr. Equi began a relationship with Harriet Speckhart. The two adopted an infant girl in 1915 and raised Mary as an early example for the United States of a same-sex, alternative family. Though their relationship ended a few years later, the two were close and raised their daughter together until Speckhart's death in 1927. For her radical politics and same-sex relations, Equi battled discrimination and harassment. Equi was nabbed for stabbing a policeman with a steel hat pin as she was taken to the police station during her first arrest of many— the final vestiges of her liberal faith in government reform fell away and she was reborn a revolutionary. Quote, I started in this fight a socialist, but I am now an anarchist, she proclaimed. I'm going to speak where and when I wish. No man will stop me. In 1918, Equi was convicted under the Sedition Act for speaking against U.S. involvement in World War I. She was sentenced to a three-year term at San Quentin State Prison. She was the only known lesbian and radical to be incarcerated at that prison. As a champion of justice, Dr. Equi fought to secure reproductive rights for women. When Margaret Sanger visited Portland in 1916, Sanger and Dr. Equi were arrested for defending three men caught distributing Sanger's birth control pamphlets. The incident sparked their friendship. Many people saw the campaigns for birth control, suffrage, and improvement in working conditions as separate issues, but not Dr. Equi. Instead, she saw them all as part of the larger class struggle, the end of which would be the freedom, dignity and improved health for working women and their families. Later in life, Equi became close to Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who co-founded the ACLU, and whose zeal for soapboxing and unflappable commitment to the cause drew Equi's respect. The two lived together for nearly a decade, caring for each other during the recurring bouts of ill health and exhaustion. After a heart attack in 1930, Dr. Equi lived a quiet life. She died in 1952 and was buried alongside Speckhart in Portland. They have a brain and a uterus, and they both work. This is a quote from Patricia Neal Scott, born in 1940 in Portland, Oregon. After moving to Colorado, she was a Democratic representative for Colorado from 1973 to 1997 and the first female U.S. representative elected from Colorado. She earned her pilot's license When she was just 15, attended the University of Minnesota, where she graduated with a major in history. After an additional three years, she graduated with a Juris Doctor degree from Harvard Law School in 1964. She married Jim Schroeder, a Harvard Law School classmate, and they had two children. Schroeder worked for the National Labor Relations Board from 1964 to 1966. And worked for Planned Parenthood as a legal counsel and taught in Denver's public schools. In 1970, although considered a long shot, Schroeder's message of anti-war, the environment, and child care led her to run for Congress in 1972, winning by just over 8,000 votes, a massive landslide. At age 32, Schroeder was the second youngest woman ever elected to Congress. And she was elected 11 more times. While in Congress, she became the first woman to serve on the House of Armed Services Committee. She was also a member of the original Select Committee on Children, Youth, and Families that was established in 1983. Schroeder was known during her early tenure in Congress for balancing her congressional work with motherhood even bringing diapers to the floor of Congress. She was known for advocacy on work-family issues, a prime mover behind the Family and Medical Leave Act in 1993 and the 1985 Military Family Act. Schroeder styled herself as a fiscally conservative liberal, in 1981, she voted against Reagan's tax cuts, as she thought the country could not afford it. In 1986, she had a 95% rating from Americans for Dem- Democratic Action and was also ranked by the National Taxpayers Union as more fiscally conservative. In 1989, Schroeder voted against George H. W. Bush's administration, more than any House member, and often did not vote with fellow Democrats on party unity votes. The Washington Post remarked that Schroeder was known for her barbed wit, and many of her comments and quips were singled out for media attention during her career. She coined the phrase Teflon President to describe Ronald Reagan and his popularity even amid scandal. The idea came to her when she was frying eggs in a Teflon pan. Author Rebecca Traister has recalled that Schroeder responded to concerns about balancing political life with motherhood by her saying, I have a brain and a uterus, and they both work. In a 1995 exchange in which Representative Duke Cunningham told then-Representative Bernie Sanders to sit down, you socialist. During a debate in which Sanders and Schroeder both objected to homophobic comments Cunningham had made during the debate, Schroeder asked, quote, parliamentary inquiry, Mr. Chairman, do we have to call the gentleman a gentleman if he's not one? Unquote. Showing her barbed sense of humor. In 1989, she wrote a book titled Champion of the Great American Family, a personal and political book that discussed her own personal story and legislative efforts to enact policy on family issues such as parental leave, child care, family economics, and family planning. Schroeder did not seek re-election in 1996, citing dissatisfaction with the House's Republican majority. She was succeeded by Colorado State House Minority Whip Diana DeGatte, a fellow Democrat. In her farewell press conference, she joked about, quote, spending 24 years in a federal institution, unquote, and titled her 1998 memoir, 24 Years of House Work and the Place is Still a Mess. She was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1995. She was honored by the National Research Center for Women and Families in 26 for her lifetime of achievements with a Four Mother Award. Schroeder was portrayed in the 2016 HBO film Confirmation. On March 13th, less than a week ago at the time of this recording, This remarkable woman died at the age of 82, but her legacy will continue forward for families and for women today seeking equality and a better life for future generations. note that this section contains brief descriptions of medical abuse. If you prefer to avoid that content, you may skip the following eight minutes. I, though a woman, have just as good a right to my opinion as my husband has to his. That's a quote from Elizabeth Packard. Born in 1816, Also known as E.P.W. Packard, Elizabeth was able to get a quality education at the Amherst Female Seminary, thanks to the adequate wealth of her parents. She became a well-educated middle-class woman, working as a teacher. At the age of 23 and at the insistence of her parents, she married Theophilus Packard, a Calvinist minister, 14 years her senior On a hot summer's night in June 1860, the heavy door of the insane asylum clanged shut behind Elizabeth Packard, and she felt all hope desert her. Because she was not mad, she was merely independent. Yet, according to the 19th century psychiatry, female independence was madness. Elizabeth, a housewife and mother of six, had simply stood up to her domineering husband. As she would record in a defense of her sanity that she wrote while in the asylum, she insisted, quote, I, though a woman, have just as good a right to my opinion as my husband has to his. But assertive women in those days were swiftly dispatched to asylums, institutionalized for causing Quote, the greatest annoyances to the family, unquote, and for defying, quote, all domestic control, unquote. No wonder Elizabeth had found herself on the wrong side of a locked ward door in the Jacksonville Insane Asylum in Illinois. The medical wisdom of the age was that assertive, ambitious women were unnatural and therefore sick. For centuries, women's natures had been thought inextricably linked to their reproductive organs, and over time, the supposedly scientific fact had evolved into the belief that it was natural for women to be fulfilled solely by being wives and mothers. When in the 19th century, biological-based gender roles came to the fore, work and intellect for men, home and children for women, it was one small step for doctors to declare that any woman who rejected her submissive domestic role was medically impaired. Said one doctor after visiting a girls' school in 1858, quote, You seem to be training your girls for the lunatic asylum. Unquote. Women who studied or read or who simply had minds of their own and a determination to use them were demonstrating. Eccentricity of conduct, which meant in 1835 that they were morally insane and were to be locked away until they conformed to more natural feminine behavior. And it was easy for the men in their lives to do it. When Elizabeth's husband looked into the matter, he found he could arrange his wife's committal simply by his request and specifically without evidence of insanity required in other cases. As Elizabeth Packard put it, quote, my husband placed me in this insane asylum, fully determined I should have a thorough dressing down or breaking in before he should take me out, unquote. As Elizabeth assessed her situation, she saw the stark future that awaited if she refused to submit. Many of her fellow patients, One was midway through a 16-year incarceration committed for reading novels or behavior during the change of life. A woman's menstrual cycle alone could see her committed, suffering from uterine derangement. Period-related madness was so commonplace that doctors encouraged mothers to delay the onset of their daughter's menses by making them take cold baths and abstain from meat and novels. Chloroform and ether were particularly effective on boisterous women and therefore used to quiet them. In doctor's words, quote, not only temporarily but permanently, unquote. Many asylum superintendents thought restraints such as straitjackets, rarely necessary among males, standard for disobedient women, though. And if drugs and straitjackets didn't work, there was always surgery. The theory ran that a woman's sexual organs caused her madness, so a clitorectomy could be performed or removal of ovaries. There was only one way to escape: to submit. Every genuine emotion had to be stifled. Every act of difference from society's prescribed model of femininity had to be suppressed her psychiatrist, was watching. And that spirit of resistance is something we all still need, because the medicalization of female behavior didn't stop in the 19th century, nor did the attempt to silence and discredit women by claiming we were crazy. Think of the fearless suffragist who were deemed hysteric. One doctor declared, There is mixed up with the woman's movement, much mental disorder. Think of Rose McGowan, whose resolve to hold Harvey Weinstein to account saw his lawyers discuss a plot to make her seem increasingly unglued, a memo revealed. Think of Nancy Pelosi in her electric blue suit, literally standing up to Donald Trump, who said, there is something Wrong with her upstairs, Trump railed. She is a very sick person. Well, that hot summer night in 1860, Elizabeth thought her life was over. In fact, it was only just the beginning. The worst that my enemies can do, they have done, and I fear them no more, she wrote of being locked up in the asylum. I am now free to be true and honest. This woman-crushing machinery works the wrong way. The true woman shines brighter and brighter under the process instead of being strangled. The patriarchy can try to control us, but some of us cannot be controlled. Instead, we can take inspiration from women like Elizabeth, a woman who, like so many others before her and long since, was declared insane by by a patriarchal society simply for speaking her mind. Yet, despite the odds being stacked against her, she managed to triumph and changed the world, improving the rights of women and the mentally ill. Packard made her living as a writer until her death at the age of 81 in 1897. It took her nine years to gain custody of her own children. She wrote many books including, Modern Persecution, Insane Asylums Unveiled. This book shed light on rampant institutional abuse and called for major reforms. Elizabeth Packard became what some scholars call a publicist and lobbyist for better insanity laws. She died on July 25, 1897. In her obituary, a Chicago newspaper described her as, quote, the reformer of the insane asylum methods, unquote. She dedicated her life to making a difference. Know what you want, and surely you will get it. A quote by Adelaide. She was born Sarah Adeline Johnson to a farm family of modest means in 1859 in Plymouth, Illinois. She attended a rural school and then took classes at the St. Louis School of Design. In 1878, she changed from Sarah Adeline to Adelaide, a name she thought was more dramatic. She moved to Chicago and supported herself with her art. In January, 1882, hurrying to get to her studio, she slipped and fell 20 feet down the well of an unguarded elevator shaft. Badly hurt, she sued for compensation and was awarded the sum of $15,000. This injury and award gave her the financial freedom to travel to Europe to study painting and sculpture, an opportunity she would never have had without the accident. She took the opportunity to study in Dresden and Rome, studying with Monteverde in Rome, where she kept a studio until 1920. Johnson exhibited her work, a bust of Susan B. Anthony and a bust of Caroline B. Winslow at the Woman's Building at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. In 1896, she married Frederick Jenkins, a British businessman and fellow vegetarian who was 11 years younger than she. The marriage ended after 12 years. The high point of her professional career was to complete a monument in Washington, D.C. in honor of the women's suffrage movement. Alva Belmont, helped to secure funding for the piece called Portrait Monument to Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony, which was unveiled in 1921. Jane Adams presided over the dedication ceremony in February of 1921, a date designed to coincide with Anthony's birthday. The inscription read, woman first denied a soul then called mindless now arisen declaring herself an entity to be reckoned with the next day congress ordered the inscription removed and the statue was placed in storage for most of the next 75 years kept in the crypt in the u.s capitol In 1995, the 75th anniversary of the 19th amendment, a group of Congresswomen called for the statue to be raised from the depths of the Capitol. Newt Gingrich, then Speaker of the House, refused to allocate the $75,000 needed to move the monument despite bipartisan support. However, private funds were raised and the portrait monument was finally moved to the Rotunda in 1997 where it is today. Adelaide's career declined after the 1930s and financial problems beset her. She relied on others for financial support and was faced with eviction for failure to pay taxes. She moved in with friends in 1947 and appeared on TV quiz programs trying to win money to buy back her home. Her flamboyant nature led her to lie about her age throughout her life. She celebrated her 100th birthday at the age of 88. Johnson was a vegetarian in her youth, and in 1893, she was speaker at the Third International Vegetarian Congress in Chicago. Johnson did not embrace a particular religion, but was a member of the National Spiritualist Association of Churches. Upon her death in 1955, her age was reported to be 108, though she was only 95. She is buried in Washington, D.C. at Congressional Cemetery. Although Adelaide, known as the sculptress of the women's movement, did not see her work appreciated during her lifetime, the portrait monument, which represents the three leading women involved In the women's suffrage movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Lucretia Mott is now located in the United States Capitol Rotunda, a sight not to be missed. This has been Loree Johnson. Music by local pianist and composer Jennifer Goodenberger is gratefully acknowledged. This program is produced for KMUN in celebration of Women's History Month. You can find the podcast for this program at KMUN.org.